1990, Paul Rice, like many college graduates, grabbed his diploma and was ready to save the world. Lots of college graduates are ready, motivated, and even have the grit and determination. But there aren't many like Paul Rice. He decided to go get his hands dirty digging in the fields of Nicaragua for a year, helping farmers, building agricultural capacity. Quickly, he realized that millions of dollars of charitable contributions, while well-intended, were actually being squandered because the farmers were not developing their own capacity to solve their own problems. And then he did what I see that visionaries do the very best. They connect the dots. They hear one story, and the wheels turn. They see a gap, and they're desperate to fill it. How can what I just heard over there solve the problem I see over here? The local guy would pay you 10 cents pound for your coffee, and Paul organized 20 farmers with small farms and shipped 2,000 pounds of coffee to Boston. Fair traders paid $1.20 a pound. So instead of 200 bucks, the take was 2,000. These, guys, these folks had never seen so much money. Can you imagine how Paul felt? Can you imagine how the farmers felt? Bringing these two farmers together started more than just a nonprofit. It started a movement that is now worldwide. Paul has built a movement to help farmers and workers navigate the global market and empower themselves out of poverty, and he has continued to connect the dots. What if the movement could be a force for social and environmental change? So here's the question. What kind of person does it take to build a movement? What are the strategies that take something seemingly small and turn it into a global game changer? How do you persuade folks to change? And how do you build relationships and partnerships? Because we all know that building and sustaining a movement is a team sport. I'm hungry to know. I bet you are too. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Paul Rice is founder, president, and CEO of Fairtrade USA, the internationally acclaimed social enterprise and leading certifier of fair trade products in North America. He launched the award-winning nonprofit organization in 1998 after spending 11 years organizing farmers in the highlands of Nicaragua. There, he founded and led the country's first fair trade coffee export cooperative, which introduced him to the transformative power of market-based approaches to sustainable development. He then returned to the U.S. to obtain his MBA from Berkeley. And I think he's drinking out of a Berkeley coffee mug as we speak with the dream of bringing fair trade to consumers, businesses, and farmers worldwide. This guy and his team have enlisted the support of over 1,300 companies from Green Mountain to Starbucks to Pepsi. Um, and they now, through Fair Trade USA, certify coffee, tea, cocoa, sugar, coconuts, fruits and vegetables, and most recently, through groundbreaking partnerships with Patagonia, West Elm, and Gap, Fairtrade has begun certifying apparel and home furnishings. Since its launch, Fairtrade USA and its partners have generated almost $500 million in additional income for farmers and workers in more than 70 countries worldwide, allowing them to keep their kids in school, care for the land, and steadily improve their livelihoods. And all this because he graduated from college and decided to go get, change the world by getting his hands dirty. Paul, it's really an honor to meet you and to share your story with kindred spirit nonprofit leaders who are anxious to learn from the story you tell. Paul, nice to meet you, and thank you. Oh, John, nice to meet you, too. Thank you for chatting with me today. Uh, uh, pleasure and privilege is mine. Uh, I always love to ask people um, who've had such a journey, um, what were you like as a kid? Were you always kind of a, a big thinker, somebody who dreamed big? Well, I, I don't know if I was a big thinker, but I've, I've always had a big heart. I was raised by a single mom in the 60s in the South, and she taught me not to accept the world around us. We, the world was, you know, we were in the Vietnam War. There was racism and sexism all around us. And, um, um, mama loved Martin Luther King and I did too. And, um, she demonstrated against the Vietnam war and I was right by her side. I had a great role model in Ruth Rice, uh, who passed away a few months ago at the age of 95. Um, and, and my I'm, big heart, my big heart comes from her. I am um, sorry for your loss, but it sounds like Ruth Rice left one hell of a legacy. 
<laughs> well, I'm carrying her torch. And, you know, I, I, I do love to think big. And I guess I did start as a kid because, uh, you know, I, 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 I dared to think that the world's wrongs could be righted. Um, whereabouts in the South did you grow up, Paul? I grew up in Texas mostly. Uh-huh, Texas. Um, and, um, oh, sorry, you were going to say something. Well, you know, I, I, some people have um, uh, started to talk about social entrepreneurs as kind of a, you know, a, a type of change maker. And I kind of like that uh, description uh, of, of myself and, and people like us uh, and what we do, because I, I definitely have, have dreamed of a better world from a, from a young age and wanted to change the world and make the world better from a very young age. So big dreamer for sure. But, you know, social entrepreneurs then pivot from dreaming to doing, and they try to harness the power of the market and to find ways, you know, that are kind of business-like often um, to, uh, to affect social change. And I think I've always, you know, as a kid, I, I, you know, I, I sold newspapers. I started working when I was 11. I sold newspapers. I mowed lawns. I saved my money. At the age of 16, I bought my first house and became a landlord at the age of 16. Wow. I flipped that house four years later, and that's what I paid for uh, my undergraduate education at Yale with. So I always had this weird capitalist blood running through my veins, <laughs> but I didn't want to I didn't want to make money. I just wanted to change the world. So social entrepreneur, social capitalist, that's kind of, yeah, from a young age, that's kind of who I've been. Yeah. Um, the more we tease it out and the more you listen, the more you hear it. Um, um, not sure why you needed that MBA from Berkeley, but um, uh, maybe you'll tell, <laughs> maybe you'll tell me as we keep going here. Um, so, um, so you go to Nicaragua and you start getting your hands dirty. Um did you go sort of, I, I, I'm always intrigued by this. Did you go, I'm going to go help them. Um, and that, that was kind of the, the thing. I'm just going to go help them. Or were you actually, did you go thinking, I'm going to help them. And then I'm going to figure out a way to make this, what they're, to solve problems. Like I, I'm, I'm sort of curious about the origin. So, so, so take, take us through the origin story in that regard, if you would. You know, it was, um, um, it was definitely a desire to help, but as much as that, it was, um, uh, a desire to learn. Uh, Nicaragua was, um, in the midst of a revolution at the time and, uh, they were, um, implementing a land reform movement that was giving land to poor people and encouraging them to come together and organize cooperatives. And I had studied agricultural economics, uh, in school and I was, fascinated by the co-op movement and by this notion that, you know, people could be more than just workers, they could be worker owners and they could right. develop their own businesses. And, and so the, I, I went to learn about that and, 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 and to help out in whatever way I could, not really knowing very much at the tender age <laughs> of 22 when I went. Um, but I, you know, I quickly got into it and I saw around me so many well-intentioned uh, development projects, community development projects, agricultural development projects that were designed by really smart people in capitals around the world and that were funded by millions of dollars of aid money but weren't hitting the mark, that weren't really um, uh, helping farmers develop their communities sustainably. And right, so, so I actually thought about it as I, as I read about you, mm. that it was, it, it was like that <clears throat> people were tossing money, but they weren't sowing any seeds in the land. Yeah, yeah. And we were doing really stupid stuff with that well-intentioned money. I mean, I remember one project where, um, you know, the, the, the headline of the project was food security. So, okay, that sounds good. Help poor people grow their own food. You know what we did? We felled thousands of acres of forest land so that farmers could plant corn on it rather than thinking, okay, this forest, <laughs> this forest is helping secure the, the uh, you know, the, the, the weather patterns and the climate. Oh. Maybe we should think about forest products like <sighs> planting coffee underneath the canopy of the forest. Like it was just kind of, we made dumb mistakes. Right. So, um, so uh, you learn, so tell me about the, the fair trade origin store. So where'd you, where'd you make that connection? There you are sure. in Nicaragua, you're like a, 
skinny young kid and uh and how'd you how'd you make that what do, how did you connect those dots I, w- I was skinny by the way i i, I just had this hunch i might have actually rice, seen a, i might have actually seen a picture and corn tortillas three times a day for 11 years i was a skinny boy for sure actually you know what <laughs> i knew that because i watched a ted talk and you did a you did a slide deck that had a picture of you as a very yeah. skinny young man yeah yeah, yeah i was i was i, I was I was uh, definitely trying to walk the talk back then. I also had, you know, the Che Guevara mustache you going. You totally did. And, um, I learned how to dance salsa. Like, I did the whole thing. I married locally. You know, I had our kid in Nicaragua. So, yeah, Nicaragua was my life for more than a decade, from age 22 to age 33. And, you know, this early experience of working on a lot of well-intentioned aid-funded projects that failed uh, left me really uh, discouraged and uh, looking for other alternatives. Right. And honestly, Joan, um, for much of my early career, I thought that the the market was the problem and that nonprofits and and projects run by nonprofits were aimed at addressing market failure. I I didn't see the market as a solution. I saw it as the problem. I saw corporate greed as the problem. And, you know, I never imagined... Uh, using the market uh, in in a positive way, I wanted uh-huh. I, I kind of want I kind of wanted to uh, you know move farmers beyond it, and and that wasn't really possible. And I and so I found myself in 1990 after seven years in the field, feeling discouraged with what I was doing, and and the lack of efficacy there. But then also feeling really open to exploring other opportunities. And that's when um, my dear friend uh, and and mentor. Uh, the late Michael Shimkin uh, asked me one day in a letter, in a handwritten letter, because this is pre-internet. Pre- <laughs> he sent me a letter. Paul, how you doing? Pablo, actually. Pablo, how you doing? Have you ever heard of fair trade? Mm-hmm. And um, and I hadn't. Fair trade had been around in, in England, uh, started in England, had been around in Europe for uh, already 30, 30 years. And, um, and there was, uh, there were a couple of, Fair trade uh, companies, very small mission-driven companies, one of them in Boston called Equal Exchange. And uh, I got in touch with them, and, and that led eventually to me forming this Fair Trade Coffee Co-op in Nicaragua and selling the first container of Fair Trade Coffee out of Nicaragua to, uh, to these pioneers, uh, the company called Equal Exchange. Um, so you have so, – so, okay, so your, your, your friend plants this seed. Sorry for the pun. Um, and you then uh, um, had to persuade a bunch of farmers, right? So 20, I think it was 20 farmers, if I have your story right, to, right. Do, to do something different from what they were doing. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, so often people who are in this situation don't believe it can get better. And... Did, you know, I, I found myself wondering as I read about you, sort of where, where you perceived as kind of, kind of a little nuts or kind of a con man. I'm, I'm really interested in how you, how you created that original um, cooperative and how you overcame what might have been their objections, if any, because, because what yeah. you've done your whole life since has been some variation of that set of conversations. Yeah. Yeah, I love this question. It's a really, um, it's an interesting thing to think about. Like the, the, the first movers, the, fair, the very first people to join a movement, to create a movement. Like what, yeah. um, what, what's the chemistry there? What's the leap of faith? Look, here's the thing. Um, I had already been working in those mountains for seven years. I was a known quantity. I was Pablo. I had survived the war alongside them. I had married a local gal. I'd kind of earned my stripes in a yes. way. Yes. Okay. Now that said, I talked to three, 400 people, three or 400 farmers that summer, and I only got 20 brave souls to say, okay, here you go. We're going to deliver our coffee to you on consignment. So not cash up front, but here's wow. our coffee. Pablito, we believe that you're going to go sell it and get us a decent price. Okay. Go make it happen. And so, what was the, so what was the common thread among those twenty? How were they different? Well, it's it's um it's 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 the leap of faith. It's the belief in something that they haven't yet seen. 
And they and, had, they didn't have that, those 20, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm, you're getting me all juiced up here. Those 20 didn't have a uniquely personal relationship with you different from all the other people who said, no, it wasn't necessarily personal no. relationship. Well, personal relationships was part of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Several of them knew me and had known me for years and, and knew, you know, that I was there to serve for sure. For sure. Right. Um, but, you know, I think for me, one of the biggest challenges now over 30 years of, of working with farmers in this capacity, one of the biggest challenges um, in, 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 in facing poverty alleviation in general is the challenge of self-identity. So, yeah. so the, the, these farmers saw themselves as farmers. They Correct. did not see themselves as marketers and exporters of their own harvest. That was something the big companies did. Yeah, it was it was this. It, 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 what held so many people back from joining that first year was just the notion that oh, I can't do that. I'm a farmer. What do I know about exporting? Twenty brave souls dared to imagine themselves wearing a different hat, not just yeah. wearing the farmer hat, but also wearing the hat of an export company. And and so it was definitely a leap of faith. It wasn't just about me and my relationship with them. It was about them. And the imagination that they had about how they could change their position in the global economy and do uh, something that they had never seen uh, before, but uh, sounded, wow, that sounds pretty cool. That sounds pretty intriguing. Let's see if we can make that happen. Yeah, the imagination piece is so interesting, Paul. The notion that um, that someone can draw a picture for themselves of a new way of being in the world, of a new way of operating in the world and say, I want that. I really want that. Um, and, uh, and, and this skinny guy with that goofy mustache is giving me a chance to get that. Um, did you call my mustache goofy. I, I did. I, I, yeah, yeah. It wasn't that goofy. Well, I have to tell you, what, I, my brother had my brother had that same mustache, so I, I guess I, I called his mustache goofy too. But but right, is it? it, it yeah, I just I, I'm I'm getting stuck here, but I just feel like you know it, it's a, it, it's being able to actually draw a picture of what the world could like be like yeah. if I did something different, thought a different way, tried yeah. something else. But if you can't draw that picture, the, the path just feels too scary. Yeah. So do you know, Joan, what the motto of the state of Missouri is? Oh, come on. That's not, that's not fair. Um, yeah, it is. Missouri uh, is the show me state. Oh, I thought, for, I know it's not live free or die. <laughs> Missouri. No, it's no, not, it isn't. So so all farmers, every farmer I've ever met in any country, in any community, any mountaintop, anywhere in the world, all farmers are from Missouri. All farmers are show me. Oh, show got me. it. And so those first 20, that first year, they were not show me. They were not from Missouri. They were from some other planet. They believed in something they'd never seen before. But after that, we built a movement. And we did it based on the success of the first year. We showed everyone that if they joined the co-op, they could get a dollar a pound for their coffee instead of 10 cents a pound from the local middleman. Right. And, you, you, me, and, and, and here's the thing. So many social movements um, are inspired by big change. But it's hard to show big change. So yes. start with small change. Start with small change that you can demonstrate. We demonstrated the first year with 20 farmers. And guess what? The second year, we, we had 400 farmers. Yeah, of course the you third did. Year, well, we you had 3,000 farmers, not because they believed my speech, but because they saw it working. And so well, it snowballed. Something else happened, too. You built an yeah. army. You built an army, right? Is that you, you, you became... Uh, the leader of messengers, but you had far, you, 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 you built 20 ambassadors in that process and they weren't going to keep their pie holes shut. They were going to tell everybody they knew that yeah, they, they should be a part of this. Right. So yeah, that's, and then that's when the, that's when that Rolling Stone starts to really gather moss is that yeah. there's this army of people, the first people who took the leap, then the other folks who said, Oh, that's what that, that's what happens. I'm all, I'm in. And you weren't the lone voice. That's right. Yeah, it became an orchestra, not just a, you weren't just doing a solo anymore. Fascinating. Yeah. 
totally like fast. The orchestra analogy more than the army analogy. We were not we were not making war. We were making peace. We were yeah. making love. We were building something really beautiful. Because look, farmers in on the mountaintops and in communities around the world are are um, are are in perhaps the most disadvantageous position in the global agricultural economy. They get, you know, on average, coffee farmers today get between one and two pennies mm-hmm. from the $3 latte that we buy at Starbucks, right? The farmer mm-hmm. only got a penny of that $3. It's, it's a crime. Um, and so we tried to reposition them, we'd not take them out of the global economy. That's not possible. They're still going to sell coffee. They're yep. still, you know, they're still going to be a part of the global economy, but how can we help them become empowered competitive actors in the global economy that are not selling their coffee beans to the local middleman for pennies on the pound, but that are exporting direct and adding value and, you know, earning their own way, as it were, moving beyond charity to something that's based on the market, but that definitely transforms the way they're in that market in a way that empowers them and allows them to become authors of their own future. Right. And and there's also something about self-worth, right? Charity is really different from I changed, I changed how I think about myself. And as a result, something different happened for me. And so I am thus, um, uh, I I see myself as much more valuable. I have a greater degree of self-worth and that, and that can make all the difference for people. Um, did you have a moment where, where you realized, oh my gosh, this thing is catching fire? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or did it just happen? Sometimes it's all organic. And then before you know it, it's X. Well, you know, when we, I guess it was in the second year when we started to get some uh, notoriety in, 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 in the global coffee market, when the global coffee market started to hear that, um, that there was this farmer-owned company, this farmer-owned co-op that was delivering some of the best-tasting coffee that the world was experiencing. And it was a new arrival. Nicaragua was coming out of a wartime where it wasn't really exporting much. And so yep. it was kind of a new thing, right? It was a, it was, um, a new discovery. And, and so suddenly we started to get purchase orders from companies all over the world. We went way beyond this one company that we started with in Boston, Equal Exchange, God bless them. Uh, and started to get orders from Germany and Switzerland and England. And so, you know, the, 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 the market, demand for our product was what drove the growth of the co-op. It wasn't, it wasn't just farmers seeing what we were doing and saying, Oh, can I join? It was also the fact that the demand was growing to support that. And so, you know, what we heard the market saying was, we love your product. We love your story. We love that the money is going back to the farmer, but you need to grow quality and you need to deliver on time. And so we worked really hard to make sure that the quality was really high. So we set new quality uh, parameters, new quality rules. We wouldn't take uh, farmer's quality if it was, you know, fermented coffee or if it uh-huh. was dirty. And, um, and the farmers had never seen that kind of accountability before. They just delivered all their coffee in the past to the middleman for a few pennies. But now we were asking them to separate the, you know, the 10% of the harvest that wasn't high quality from the 90% that was. And then we worked really hard to deliver on time and just to be good business people. Yep. And so after year two, when we actually, you know, took this kind of leap forward and, and managed to be both social and entrepreneurial and successful as a business, that was kind of the epiphany when I realized, uh, holy shit, this thing's going to take off. Right. And then, you know, within a year, I realized... Um, the, the, the even greater epiphany, which was that after 11 years in the field, I was not destined to stay. Yeah. I was not destined to continue being Pablo. I needed to become Paul again. I needed to come back to the United States. Fair trade was booming in Europe at the time. And for some crazy reason, it, it wasn't taking off in the U.S. There were just a couple of companies, but there was no movement in the U.S., and Joan, I felt a calling. I know it yeah. sounds weird, but I, yeah. I just, I felt like I no longer had the right to stay there in my little, you know, uh, in my little utopia, as it were, in my little, 
uh, project, which was going great. And, you know, my wife's Nicaraguan. My son was born there. Like I had no reason to come back. I was going to be Pablo for the rest of my days, but I just felt pulled. I felt called uh, by this, you know, by this magical journey of empowerment of these farmers. I felt called to come back to the U.S. and see if I could plant the seed here. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you you tasted it, right? You had tasted what it meant for people. And and then there all of a sudden became this like, these people need to, to taste this too, right? Right. And, and then it's like, how could I, how could I just, how could I just keep it here? Right. Uh, it's, yeah. fa- it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So when you yeah. started in the U.S., um, I, I want to talk about um, partnerships and alliances and that part, those, those uh, yeah. instruments in the orchestra. Um, yeah. tell, tell me, you know, when you got going in the U.S., um, what were some of the key partnerships uh, you built first and sort of what it took? And, in, 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 you know, I, I think that partnerships and alliances require sometimes compromises and trade-offs. So I'm, I'm really interested in hearing that piece of the movement building story. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, fair trade certification today covers coffee and tea, chocolate and sugar, bananas and all kinds of fruits and vegetables, fish, uh, clothing, uh, furnishings, you know, now 40, 50 product categories. But back in 1998, when we first got started with fair trade certification here in the U.S., it was just coffee. And I had just come from working with coffee farmers. I was a coffee guy. So really the the, the nut to crack is we thought about how to scale the fair trade movement or how to build a fair trade movement here in the United States was, you know, start with coffee, start with what you know, start small, start with people that, um, you know, had been a part of the Nicaragua story and, and kind of start with those relationships. So I went to uh, Royal Coffee here in the Bay Area and I went to Equal Exchange out in uh, um, Boston, Mass. and um, and other small mission-driven companies, and I pitched them on this notion that fair trade could be big, um, that fair mm-hmm. trade could be a movement, not just in Europe, but here in the United States. Well, you also had a little show too, didn't you? I mean, right? If it, if it, you, you, weren't, you weren't starting from scratch. I wasn't starting from scratch. I had the credibility of having done it in the field and, um, and having, you know, kind of built that, that whole um, – uh, effort in Nicaragua. And so I was, I was, I was pitching the power of better coffee for a better world to, uh, both companies and activists here. And so in terms of the two alliances that we needed to form early on, it was with the activist community, Uh um, organizations like Oxfam America and Co-op America and Global Exchange, um, organizations that were, concerned about globalization and, um, and global poverty and, uh, and doing some, and, you know, and, and, and trying to hold companies accountable to their sourcing practices, uh, on the one hand, so the activist community that was kind of shining a light on the dark side of business as usual, right? Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, the business community, starting with mission-driven companies who shared our values. Right. Um, but we, you know, from the very beginning, I never wanted this to be small. I never thought of fair trade as a niche, a, you know, a market niche or a, 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 a small endeavor. I, I always thought that our mission was to change global capitalism and to harness the power of the market to ideally lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. So early on, we wanted to go and work with the big boys and Starbucks was our first big customer. Yep. yep. And, and so, you know, when you talk about alliances and trade-offs, uh, that was definitely um, a big trade-off because, uh, you know, working with Starbucks <clears throat> was, um, was kind of fraught. I mean, they had their own interests. They had, had their own vision. Uh, Starbucks did the one, the one product dabble, as I call it. You know, they signed up with us and they did one fair trade skew. And to this day, they only do uh, 5% of their total volume on fair trade terms. Uh, uh, the rest they do, you know, just on normal market terms. But, you know, and, and the activists weren't happy about us signing Starbucks at the time. Right. Um, I bet they weren't. And so, you know, so there was a, <clears throat> there was a real balancing act that we had to, um, 
to follow in terms of keeping the activists on our side, but then also enlisting the support of big companies to try and go to scale and, and, and trying to avoid being, uh, you know, the greenwasher for big companies that might not, you know, have really wanted to scale fair trade. They just wanted to keep the activists away. And so, you know, that, uh, a few years later, we signed Dunkin' Donuts and kind of same thing. Dunkin' Donuts did one product and, um, uh, you know, it definitely helped us build momentum and helped us build our movement. But the trade-off was that um, they never really pursued it. And in fact, a couple of years ago, Dunkin' Donuts dropped fair trade and, uh, and they did so basically just to save themselves a couple million dollars a year so they wouldn't have to pay the farmer the premium. So, you know, it's, forming partnerships with corporate America is, um, um, is challenging, you know, yeah. because companies have their own vision. They have different interests and uh, sometimes it works great. And we have tons of great partners uh, in corporate America. We have over uh, 1200 um, uh, corporate partnerships today with companies large and small. And sometimes it's really meaningful and deep and values driven. And other times it's just like, ah, they're just dabbling. They're just kind of playing around with it to see, you know, to uh, see how it goes. And um, um, that can be disappointing as you can imagine. Well, I also think too, that um, having, having worn the activist hat in the LGBT community, um, activists can, can, uh, can kind of sink you. (laughs) They're, you know, they're not, they're they're not just loud voices. Right. Um, And um, what do you think the key, you know, sort of, in a in a movement like that, where you're going to have to make deals that the act, uh, the activist community isn't going to be very happy about, um, what do you, what do you think is the what do you think is the key to to um, get their buy in or at least their um, general uh, you know the, the, their buy in or at least so they they don't work to try to sink you. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think. And I say that, by the way, actually, as a person who's been an activist who has been in the sinking business. Yeah. And, and I admire people who do this work. I do too. And um, uh, I still think of myself as an activist. Right. You know, I, 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 I think um, a couple of things, you know, that I've, I've seen along, uh, over the years. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the stakeholder community, not just thinking about activists, but NGOs and farmers and companies and, you know, that, that big stakeholder community that we serve and that uh, forms the fair trade movement. We're a multi-stakeholder movement. Um, those members, activists and otherwise, they want to be consulted on big decisions. They want to be uh, heard. They yep. want to know that they have that their perspective is considered. Yep. Uh, they don't necessarily expect you to adopt uh, all of their ideas, but they do expect you to come back after the consultation or you know after the reflection and tell them you know whether or not you embrace their ideas and if you didn't, why? Uh, so they want some accountability around their thought a partnership, and they want some accountability around results. And so in the end. You know, we got the activists to kind of go along with signing up Starbucks back in the year 2000. So in year two of our venture, because Starbucks, while they were only doing one SKU, one product, and it was only 5% of their volume, but in the end, because it was such a big company, it meant they were buying millions and millions of pounds of coffee, which were which was helping to put more money in the pockets of tens of thousands of farming families. Right. And so objectively, you know, it... it, it, it even though as a, it was a small percentage of their business, it was a big deal for a lot of poor farmers. And the farmers were saying, hey, we want to, you know, we want to sell our coffee at a decent price. And we don't care whether it's Equal Exchange or Starbucks or Whole Foods or Walmart, you know, just help us put food on the table and keep our kids in school by finding someone to buy our coffee at a decent price. And so we felt you know, we felt like we had a compelling argument to take back to the activists and say, okay, let's keep supporting these companies on a journey of volume and growth. Yes, let's hold these companies accountable. Yes, let's not let them greenwash with fair trade labels, but uh, let's let them in and let them dip their toe in the water because it's going to help a lot of farmers along the way. There's there's so much important, so much important information in what you just said. And I, I think a lot about, um, uh, you know, in dealing with and coaching nonprofit leaders, this notion of 
voice and being heard. And, you know, this is why, you know, oftentimes there's a good deal of turnover in the nonprofits because people come to have a voice. They don't necessarily come to have a vote. They come to have a voice. That's, that's why we call them activists, right? And, um, and to be able to communicate and say, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this because we went this way, but we actually took your thoughts into consideration, made that, and we made the choice because we know that as a result of making this deal with this corporation, we're going to continue to grow the number of farmers we help, right? And so, you know, you, your your state your 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 feet were were firmly planted on the ground as you were talking to them. So, I, I think that's really really important. So, we yeah. are, um we're um we're having a really interesting conversation. I hope you agree with Paul Rice, who is the CEO of Fair Trade USA, and um, <clears throat> uh, it's. Actually, a conversation that's about a lot more than just the fair trade, uh, his organization. It's really about what does it take to build a movement? And uh, I can't I can't think of a topic that feels uh, more important or timely, frankly. Um, I want to I want to move to just talking about um, the pace of the growth of a movement. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I often think that sometimes that I, I often think that leaders can move too quickly at their, at the, at the, at their own peril. And <laughs> I, I wonder as you went along, how did you think about pace and how did you manage it? Or how, I, I guess it's, I, that's not a past tense question, actually. It's yeah. a present tense question too. Yeah. So, um, it's a cool question. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure that, uh, that we managed the pace. I, I think maybe the pace managed us. Um, you know, it, we're an unusual social movement, John, because we're, we're so deeply connected to the market. And so right. much, much of our pace of growth over the years has been determined by the market and, and by the appetite of companies to join our movement, because remember the the fair trade movement is um, is all about uh, products that make a difference, right? I, yep. Like my my organization, Fair Trade USA, we don't buy or sell coffee, we don't buy or sell bananas, we don't buy or sell anything. We work with companies that do. Yeah. We 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 establish a standard that defines fair trade practices, and then we audit farms and factories around the world that are able to meet that standard. And, and when they meet the standard, we, we certify their products and those products that are then purchased by Whole Foods and um, Patagonia and hundreds and uh, actually over a thousand other companies um, that are, you know, that are selling fair trade products. And you'll see that label, the fair trade certified label on products uh, at your local store. So that's how the movement works. So it's a market-based model. Right. And so, you know, uh, uh, I mean, most recently, um, we um, we had a wonderful company, Chobani uh, Greek Yogurt. Um, I had one for lunch uh, yesterday. Yeah, it's a great product. It's an amazing product. It's led by uh, a Turkish immigrant named Hamdi Ulukaya. And Hamdi and his team came to us about a year ago and said, um, we would love to explore fair trade certification of milk because we're really concerned about the plight of farm workers in the dairy sector here in the United States and the wages and working conditions and safety and, and rights of those workers. And, you know, many of those workers live in the shadows. They don't feel protected by the law. And so can fair trade fill the void. And so that led to um, a feasibility study and now an initiative, which, um, you know, we recently announced uh, publicly in which we're going to develop the world's first fair trade dairy standard and launch fair trade yogurt with Chobani um, uh, early next year. And, and, and so back to the question of pace, like dairy wasn't on our radar screen. We didn't think we'd be doing that, but they came to us and they said, hey, that cool thing that you did for coffee, uh -huh. can you do it for milk? And, and we said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And so really it's the, 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 the growing momentum of what some are calling conscious capitalism. Right. It's the growing momentum of businesses that are seeing um, 
business with purpose as the new chapter yep. of, of, of global, global capitalism. It's their appetite for change and for better business models and, and, and them coming to us and saying, can fair trade be a part of this story? Yeah. It, that's the, the groundswell that's really uh, determining our pace of growth. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so fair trade, the, or, or your organization is, is a nonprofit, a 501c3? Yes, we are. Okay, so um, just really briefly, um, tell me about your revenue sources and your move to earned income. So from day one, I wanted to create more than one leg to stand on from a financial perspective. Yep. Uh, I didn't want to just stand on the fundraising, you know, grants and donations leg. I wanted to create an earned revenue stream. And, you know, guess what? We were... uh, we were auditing and certifying products. So we, we had a business service to offer to the industry. And we thought from the very beginning, well, companies should pay for that. I mean, they pay for their financial audit. Right. They pay for their uh, organic audit. If they're selling organic products, why wouldn't they pay for their fair trade audit? So that, that was the basis of an earned revenue stream that today uh, accounts for 75% of our total revenue and our total annual budget. So it's really nice as a nonprofit to be mostly funded, 75% funded by earned revenue from, you know, over a thousand companies. So we have a very diversified revenue base that's growing uh, as the fair trade market grows. And, and that gives us some independence from the whims of philanthropy. Now, that said, we're very grateful for the support of philanthropy. And, and the role of philanthropy now is really to kind of help seed new initiatives yes. like fair trade dairy right. or like uh, fair trade seafood, which we launched a couple of years ago with support from the Rockefeller foundation and the Packard foundation. Uh, so philanthropy kind of helps us. It's almost like our R and D budget. Philanthropy helps yeah. us develop initiatives. That is uh, what a, what a wonderful story and how uh, green with envy uh, listeners are as, as everyone knows that earned earned income can be a very critical leg of the stool. Um, so I, I, um, you know, I, t- I know a lot of people who start nonprofits. I know a lot of founders, um, uh, and clearly you c- qualify as a, a visionary and an activist and whatever else, you know, whatever, however else you identify. Um, but the people who are visionaries don't often actually execute very well. Um, you know, I, I started my career at MTV and the, the guy who founded MTV is actually not the guy who gets the credit. Now, of course, you know, we, in corporate America, we look for credit and, uh, (laughs) you know, the guy who, the guy who gets the credit is the guy who was able to bring it to life. Um, and, um, both are important, obviously. So my question for you is, um, uh, who, who do you s- surround yourself with? Like, what are the kinds of skills and attributes do you need to, to around you to execute, uh, execute the vision? Mm. Well, I love this question and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I really appreciate how you uh, kind of separate or identify dreamers and doers. And I think successful social entrepreneurs, successful movement builders and change makers are both dreamers and doers. Uh, It's not enough just to dream of a better world. Then you have to manifest it. You have to, you know, do the hard work and totally. And, um, you know, I think it's been said that, um, social change is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. perspiration. So, yeah. You know, I, I, I guess in my own journey, um, I have tried to uh, develop the skills to be an effective doer. So mm-hmm. early on, you mentioned that I came back from 11 years in the field and got an MBA. And, 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 and while yes, I had, you know, some entrepreneurial instincts before then, uh, getting the MBA, taking two years off to, to uh, get tools, uh, analytical mm. tools, practical tools for running businesses, running a social business, that was immensely helpful for me in right. becoming uh, an effective doer. 
uh, I have over the years tried to surround myself by my, myself by well, with doers. So I've hired great uh, teams to help implement and grow the fair trade model. I have an amazing team right now um, uh, of people who are far smarter and, and more capable than I uh, in their various functional areas, whether it's marketing or certification or business development or technology and so on. So I think, you know, uh, success depends on not doing it all yourself, but building a team of doers and, and really um, um, uh, empowering them uh, on the journey. But also, Joan, I would just say that for me, while I certainly had um, a dream and a vision for the fair trade movement and what it could be, I've tried to surround myself with kindred spirits and other visionaries and other dreamers who uh, could push my thinking. And yeah. so, you know, within the movement, um, you know, for example, among the farmer leaders that we work with, there are so many big thinkers who have yeah. uh, a, a completely, a, who have a bold and completely different vision of global capitalism in which mm -hmm. they're not victims and in right. which they're not needing anyone's help. There are partners in a common quest to save the planet. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I've recruited great members to our board. Paul Hawkins served on our board early on. And um, uh, James White, for example, is our current board chairman. He was former CEO of Jamba Juice and he was at Safeway for 20 years. And so, you know, dreamer and doer, that's, um, those are the kinds of people that we, that we call to our, um, to our movement and that I personally have learned so much from over the years and, 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 and uh, drawn support from. Um, I, 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 you loved the question. I loved the answer. Um, so, um, maybe I just, I close with this and say, so in, in 1998, you, um, started a movement with 20 farmers and now you are where you are. Um, do you still love what you do? Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. I love it so much. And here's why fair trade is still unfolding. Metamorphosis mm. is the name of the game. We're still coming out of our cocoon. It's not a. It's not a finished book. We're writing. We're just writing another chapter. And I and I love that. That you know that we as an organization and as a movement, we still have the courage, and the 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 curiosity and the creativity, if I may alliterate a bit, to uh, to evolve our movement, to challenge our assumptions, to say the fair trade of the past won't be the fair trade of the future. Mm -hmm. To say, yes, we're serving a million families in, in, in 70 countries around the world right now. That's cool. What needs to be true to go from a million families to 10 million families to 100 million families? I mean, let's remember, John, we live in a world where 2 billion people, 2 billion people are trying to survive on $2 a day, average income. And, and so fair trade has no right to stay small. We have to aspire to grow, to be big, to uh, to have a meaningful impact on 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 poverty around the world, and guess what? Consumers are so hungry. They are for for, for products that that are consistent with their values. No kidding. Uh, you know, I've got a millennial son. I've got a Gen Z daughter. They are both, uh, you know, highly representative of their age groups. They both care about the world. They want easy ways to make a difference. Yep. They're wanting to hold companies accountable. And so when I think about my personal future in this movement, I don't want to go anywhere else. I, I want to stay right here with, <clears throat> with the fair trade movement, but also, you know, the, if you will, the conscious capitalist movement writ large, right? Like I'm just intrigued as a, 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 a as a former 20 year old anti-capitalist <laughs> i'm intrigued as a as a as a 50 something uh, social capitalist i'm intrigued by this notion that capitalism doesn't have to destroy us all that in fact capitalism and society can evolve and that we can um, find a way to to really harness markets and companies and consumers to this task of social and environmental good and, and so I want to be a part of that journey for the rest of my days. Well, um, I think uh, we probably need you to want you to be and need you to be. That said, you have built a worldwide orchestra of leaders in the process of building a movement. And that's a, um, that will be part of your legacy too. Um, so um, we have 
uh, run out of time. We haven't run out of things to talk about, but we have run out of time. Um, I wanted to just mention, uh, so I have two things I want to say. First is that um, I uh, came, uh, Paul Rice came on my radar screen in a big way because both of us are contributors to a book that is, it's actually selling like hotcakes, Paul. Um, Nonprofit Management 101, uh, the brainchild of Darian Rodriguez-Hayman and Layla Brenner. And I consider myself quite lucky to be called and asked to contribute to that book. And um, I find myself in the very, very best of companies. So do check that book out and um, make sure that it is part of your library as a nonprofit leader. And then the last thing I just want to say, Paul, is... Um, um, I am guessing that uh, I am assuming that your mom got to experience the the uh, enormous pride of watching you become a leader in a movement. Uh, I, I'm assuming that that's true. Yes. Yes, she did, and um, she was an early fair trader. In fact, she was one of our first. Uh, donors way back in year one, she wrote a hundred dollar check to us in, in our first month and helped, helped us keep the lights on. She was very proud. Yes. Well, when you think about, when you think about legacy, you'll leave one and your mom left one. You guys are in the legacy business and, uh, um, how, how wonderful, what a, what a wonderful ride she must have had, um, watching, or actually it doesn't sound like she was just watching, watching and, uh, engaging in your work. So, um, what a lovely thing. Um, Hey Paul, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your, um, spending some time with me. I actually, um, uh, I will just say that the, the world is not feeling like the best, place to be in these days. And, um, you have, um, you have lifted me up today. It feels like it's been a really good day at the office for me. So thank you very much. Joan, you are a light among us. I'm such a fan of you and your work and your voice. And, um, I truly, I feel honored to be in this conversation with you. I feel so grateful for your help and, spreading the word, you know, my model of change depends on people taking small everyday actions like buying this cup of coffee rather than that cup of coffee. And you have helped me do that today. And I'm, I'm forever grateful. And um, I, I really hope to meet you face to face one of these days soon so that I can give you a huge hug. Of uh, thanks I, I was just going to say, oh, I was going to say exactly <laughs> the same thing, boy. I hope that, that we actually get past zoom and audio and, um, yeah. and do this in real time sometime before not too long. So I'm, Paul. I'm also really grateful for your um, allowing me to be real and uh, honor my mama today and honor my mentor, Michael Shimkin. As you can imagine, it's been a, a big year for me, uh, losing yes. both of them. Uh, I grew up without a dad. Michael was the closest thing to a dad that I had, and um, they died within a month of each other. Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm, I'm still grieving, but I'm also carrying their torches. And, oh, are you ever. So I, I appreciate you allowing me to... to reference them and mention and honor them in, in our conversation. Today. Well, well, people, um, people come to conversation as three-dimensional people and they mm-hmm. have, they have history and, and stories and um, it's important to honor them. So Paul, um, thanks again. We're out of time. And um, uh, I hope that you all found this conversation as informative and as inspirational as I did. Um, and speaking of inspiration, thank all of you who are listening for inspiring us every day with the work that you do. Thanks so much. And um, I'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com. Reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.